Did you just make a periodic table joke? I did. <laughs> so proud of himself right now. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 20th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you, are you doing? Good. Are you enjoying that Cherry Coke Zero? I am enjoying my Cherry Coke Zero. Thank you for calling out my soda. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. Can we go back to the um, Cherry Coke Zero for a second? I had a few more questions. It's it's a little early for that Cherry Coke. That is not true. I think, it is never too early. It's also You're on West Coast time. Quarter Jeff. seven here. Yeah. Do you not have a refreshing caffeinated beverage sitting next to you? I have 7-Eleven coffee today. So that's a little bit of a letdown. I kind of like 7-Eleven coffee. It's it's cheaper than Starbucks. That's true. Yeah, it was a dollar. Yeah. Neil, yeah, one dollar. Look at the that's size. Huge, of, right? I don't know if you can see the scale. No, I can, Look at my you're... face. Uh, this isn't good it's the for size audio. Of head. It's the size of my face. This co- And I have a you know large head. Look at it. If I hold it in front of the camera, you can't see me at all. <laughs> that's true. You should just keep it there the whole show and see what happens. Who is that coffee-headed man? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So I wanted to talk real quick up top about the U.S. women's soccer team. Mediation broke down between the team and the U.S. Soccer Federation last week, and a judge has now set a trial date of May 5th, 2020, which is just weeks before the Tokyo Olympics. Neither side can be all that happy about that, given that both wanted a later date. How might that affect the run-up to the Olympics? It's literally going to be right before the Olympics happen. Yeah, it doesn't seem good. What was the rationale? Like, why did they not? Because both, like you said, both sides wanted it to be in the fall or in the winter, like well after the Olympics. It Generally, wouldn't you think that like if that's one of the few things the two sides could agree on, that would be something that you would kind of adhere to? Like what was why did they put it beforehand? I have a feeling it was trying to get them back to the table to mediate more that it was a that it's trying to force them to talk and, and settle. I know the the frustration from the players is that they feel that an equal framework of, of pay is the baseline of an agreement. And it seems like the the federation is, you know, that's a point that they're wanting to negotiate on. And the players, they don't see a world where they would agree to anything that didn't have um, an equal system of of pay. So they seems still like seem there's nothing to apart. talk about yeah. at that point. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be interesting to watch to see if they do negotiate at all, if there is any any space there for them to come together or if this will actually go to trial in May, the team will still play. They actually don't have their schedule yet for the run-up to the Olympics. So they know a little bit more about the, the trial right now than they do about the actual Olympics, which is interesting. So, yeah, we'll be, we'll be watching that to see what happens going forward. On today's show, we'll take a look at the effects of a much younger MLB. We'll preview the 2019 college football season. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Major League Baseball might be in the midst of the most impressive class of young and prime-age hitters the game has ever seen. Just this last week alone, Pete Alonso set a new record for home runs hit by a National League rookie. 
Rookie Aristides Aquino hit his 11th home run in just his 17th career game, becoming the first player since at least 1900 to do so. And Yankee infielder Glaber Torres set a record for the most homers since 1969 against a single team when he hit his 13th home run of the season against the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> At 22, Torres became the youngest major league player with seven multi-home run games in a season. On the Fangraphs podcast, Effectively Wild, Sam Miller weighed in on Torres's spot in baseball this year. If you could only save one fun fact from the year, that captured as many sort of zeitgeisty things as possible, I think it would be Glaber Torres hitting 13 home runs in one season against the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> it combines sort of three major themes of this year. One of the themes being that the ball is juiced and all home run records are sort of unsatisfying. Right. Two is that the Orioles are historically bad. Three is that it's Glaber Torres, who is 22 years old. This is the era of young players who are really good right away. So guys, there's a lot to unpack in that. Let's start with his first point, which is obviously hard to prove or disprove. Jeff, are home run records unsatisfying? The individual records are still very sad. I mean, those were the two things we had in the steroid era that we don't really have going on now. I mean, Giancarlo Stanton, a couple of years ago, we were talking about him breaking the, the the Maris record for home runs in a season. But the individual records are incredibly exciting when you know this guy is approaching this number. And, and you, you know, I, that's the thing about the McGuire-Sosa summer and also the Bonds uh, chasing Aaron stuff is that it was very entertaining. And if we were seeing that, it'd be entertaining. Now, if we're talking about like league-wide records and team records and records against a specific team... I don't think anyone really cares as much. It's just not as much fun. But I do think the the things like the Bonds record, the former Maris record, the Aaron record, those things people will always care about if, if that comes up again. But interestingly, in this home run surge, we have not. We've seen a lot of guys put up huge numbers. We've seen you know Max Kepler hit forty home runs or almost forty home runs. Pete Alonso, no one really knew before this season besides for Met fans. Um, hit 40 home runs and but we haven't seen anyone approach like those the big records and i think that will always be exciting yeah like uh fangraphs currently predicts that cody bellinger will lead the league in home runs with 51 and then the trout will finish second with 50 and then a handful of other guys will have 40 and then a bunch of guys will have 30 uh and so that's that's a kind of a different distribution of the home runs than we were seeing in the 90s. But I don't know, does that does that make it unsatisfying? Does that inherently make it feel like it's easier to hit home runs when it was like one or two guys like Maguire and Sosa or later Bonds doing it, then it was like, well, they're just really good. Uh, and, and it's not easy to hit home runs now, but now that you have so many guys hitting 30, 40 home runs, uh, but f- fewer of them going off on these historic numbers, maybe that feeds into the perception that it's just like anybody can hit 30 home runs nowadays. That's not special anymore. But you don't think, Neil, if, if Bellinger had, was sitting on like 58 home runs right now and had a legitimate shot to take a run at Bonds... You wouldn't be interested in, you know, every time he came to the plate? Oh, no, I would. In fact, well, uh, I was making the argument from the perspective of people. One of the reasons why people might think that this was 
you know, somehow less exciting than in the past. I am on the record as saying that I'm fine with the home runs. I like a lot of home runs. I like the fact that there are all these guys that are hitting so many home runs, even if they're not challenging. So if Bellinger, yeah, upped it from the 51 home run pace to like approaching 60, I'd be way into that. Yeah, I mean, I still, I still just, I love home runs. Home runs are fun. Now, my team is hitting a lot of home runs this year, a lot more than normal. I would say. I would love it if Max Kepler hit 40, 50, 60 home runs. Go for it, Max. Do it. Doesn't he already have like 38 or something? 33, I believe. 33 home runs. Well, Fangraphs, yeah, (laughs) thinks that he'll, uh, he'll end the season with 39. So maybe if he just ups that pace just a little, he'll he'll push it over that 40 home run, uh, finish line. (laughs) Well, maybe another thing that feeds into this is that we're reaching the point where about half, almost more than half of all runs are scored just strictly via the home run. Uh, and so that's very different than in the past. And so if you see a run be scored in baseball, which is still, you know, it's not exactly rare like it is in soccer or hockey or something like that, but it's definitely not a sport on the same level as basketball or even football in terms of scoring. Now, when you see a score, it's as likely that it will come from a home run as not from a home run. Right. And I mean, Sam Miller made the comment about the the ball is obviously juiced and there's still debate about that. And, you know, there's also players have gotten smarter and have, you know, launch angle is thought about and pulling the ball versus trying to hit it the other way. I mean, these are things that there are things that people are just getting smarter at in the league as well. They also don't care about striking out. I mean, I think we've written about this, but it's really important. If you're out there with two strikes and you're swinging for the fences, you're going to strike out a lot, but you're going to hit more home runs. Whereas this whole concept of shortening your swing and going the other way and, you know, fouling balls off to stay alive is is basically gone. Uh, That's why the, the sort of strikeout rates and the home run rates will always coordinate with each other. So the record that Torres set, or he set the record since 1969 anyway, um, for most home runs against one team really doesn't have anything to do with the other home run issues. I don't think it's not so much. I mean, his, his home runs against the Orioles are 45% of his total home runs. So he's not hitting home (laughs) runs at a crazy pace. He's had, he has 29. And 13 against the Orioles, which is just kind of funny. I love that kind of stuff. I think those kind of records are hilarious and are they're what makes baseball fun. And it, I don't think it has anything to do with this era of crazy home runs necessarily. It's just a weird quirk of playing the same team a million times and, and that team not being very good. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess that goes to the point about teams tanking because if you can rack up basically half of a 30 home run season almost against one specific team that is really bad and got that way on purpose as part of one of these deliberate rebuild type years maybe that is also one of the things that feels unsatisfying because it's like try doing it against a real team sure and and that's that's fair although we don't discount other records just becomes just because they come against terrible teams. For instance, <laughs> David Wells' perfect game came against a very bad Minnesota tw- team, and so does it, should it not count? Didn't the Twins also get a uh, perfect game by like David Cohn or someone uh, in the in the late nineties too? Know, things happen. Twins have been on the receiving end fine. of a few of these historic games. Whatever, and nobody is like, oh, it was against the Twins; it shouldn't count. They're like, yep, that seems like a good place to do it. <laughs> 
He was also, that was the game that he was drunk, right? During the perfect game. Oh, is that a thing? Yeah. He came out and said afterward. Yeah, that he admitted it. I mean, that's still like in the pantheon of accomplishments while impaired. Not on the same level as Doc Ellis's LSD no-hitter, but, you know, it joins the group, I guess. Right. So, yeah, uh, David Wells said he had been out partying with Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers the night before. And then is like, wow, that is... you know, let's go face what the a twins and throw dropper. a little perfect game. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't drunk during the game. He just was hungover. He had the shampoo effect. The shampoo effect? You ever heard that when you, like, have a drink when you're very hungover? You kind of, like, get this, like, bleh, drunk again. It kind of comes back right away. I have not heard of that, but that's amazing. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, this might be a term among me and my fellow alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe you, Jeff, you meant that uh, that David Wells was like putting shampoo on the ball to make it dance around like no, a, like a no. Ball. I'm talking about his his level of sobriety. Doc Ellis also walked a lot of guys in that game. He not really did. I wonder why. Yeah. yeah, I think he hit a few guys. He was all over the place. Okay, well, so to the point about the Orioles, Sam Miller said that the Orioles called the Orioles historically bad. Can we really say that they're historically bad, though, Neil, or are they just the normal amount of bad that you expect from a tanking team? Well, you know, according to our uh, 538 model, they are on pace to win a paltry 53 games. Now, that is not like wholly unusual for the worst record in baseball except that they're not even projected to have the worst record in baseball the tigers are projected to win 51 games this season by our model and then also the marlins and royals are both projected to win 60 games so i think we have like this group of bad teams where like any one of them would be the runaway worst team in a regular season uh, from like 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, except now they're like all happening at the same time. And that's to say nothing of the Pirates of of Doc Ellis no longer. Uh, they, uh, they're they on pace to win 68 games and the Mariners are on pace to win 69 games. Uh, so like those would be second worst team in baseball material. Now they will be eighth worst team in baseball uh, this season. So, but isn't there a flip side of that? Like, let's say you're Mike Trout and you're going for a home run record, and you're uh, you have a lot of games against the Mariners, and and that's helping you. But you're also going against the Astros and their rotation of you know Cole and Granke and Verlander, and, and there's no easy outs in like a whole series potentially. So, doesn't it kind of even itself out? Right. Yeah, and we've got three teams on pace to win 103 games in the Dodgers, the Astros, and the Yankees, and. I'm, I don't know this off the top of my head, but that has to be one of the most number of teams that would have won 103 games in a single season ever, if not the most. So, again, it's like a distribution thing, but I don't know that the overall talent level of baseball has been affected by tanking. It's just that the good players have all accumulated on the contending teams and the bad players have more accumulated on the tanking teams. And the other component of that is that if you are restocking with young players, the development curve in MLB has has usually has taken a while and it and you know, so those players are going to start out in double A or whatever and it's going to take a while for their contributions to be felt. Except now we have this era of all of these amazing young stars who seem to be reaching their 
potential a lot faster than maybe we have seen in the past, or maybe there are just more of them that are busting through faster. Neil, you've written um, about the onslaught of incredible young players. Have they really just taken over the league? Well, I mean, it does seem like um, we're in the middle of this era of unprecedented dominance for young players. Um, So in the story that I wrote on that, I looked at the share of wins above replacement that were accumulated by you know, these various buckets of players based on position and age. And so uh, hitters under the age of 30 account now for 45% of all the value in all of Major League Baseball. That includes hitters and pitchers value overall. Uh, And that's the all-time record. Uh, And some of that is like Mike Trout himself has accounted for one percent of all the the war in baseball. That's which is really like amazing. I don't know what to yeah. do with that, yeah. but it sounds really uh, really cool. Yeah. Just in general, if you look at an age by age, you know, breakdown of the best players in baseball this season, they're like historically great uh, for players their age. Even like the second or third best player at a given age is historically great. My question that I have that I'm sort of thinking about, thinking through is this idea of we are looking at this unprecedented group of young players producing value. Now, how much of that is talent and how much of it is opportunity? Because it's both. Uh, It's a combination of both. And obviously, you know, these guys are plainly really, really talented, your Bellingers and Ronald Acuna's and Javi Baez and, and guys like that. But at the same time, is it because they came in on the heels of a generation that like wasn't all that good? And so that's the generation that now is in their 30s. And when they're hitting free agency, they can't really get the types of deals that they did. Was there like a vacuum of just, you know, not as good players? And now these guys are kind of coming in and taking over on the back end. Or how much of it is just teams are giving more opportunities now to younger players because they know that that is the time in which you can kind of get the most cost-effective performance because players are restricted in how much they can earn in their first six years of service time. They're not free agents. For half of that time, they're not even able to command anything more than the league minimum. And so teams are like, look, it's worth it for us to just build a team basically full of really young players because they're the cheapest players and you know, some of them are really good and it's just more cost effective that way. I don't know, because I think we'll see when the Ronald Acunas of the world hit their 30s and then we'll kind of say, is there still going to be a free agent freeze then? Or will this generation start to kind of get paid like the previous generations, which would indicate that there was just a vacuum of of players kind of coming through and maybe that's just a historical anomaly? Yeah, I think... So there was a chart in your piece that was telling to me that was the share of war across the league for position players under the age of 30 versus position players over the age of 30. And position player, the younger position players had always, almost always, been a- above, had a higher share of war than the older players. But lately there's been a really clear trend where since 2000, it's just they were both around 30 percent of the share of war and the younger players just took off and the older players just dropped. That was interesting to me. That tell, that says to me that there has to be something going on with what the league is doing that's more than just these players are really talented. Don't you think this is just 
less about baseball and more about sports in general because this is happening everywhere in every sport yeah no that's true i mean it just has i think it has to do with you know the strides we've made and just in terms of like training and, and health and nutrition and and these guys like physically are ready to play the game at the top level at a younger age where you know maybe that wasn't the case a few years ago and i also think our abilities to evaluate talent has improved dramatically i mean this is happening in the nhl where these kids are getting drafted and they're going into the league right off the bat which we never saw unless it was like a a very rare gretzky type but now it's happening to almost all the guys taken in the first round or or at least the top of the first round it's because the the sport's getting younger and they're realizing they need speed and these guys are ready and they'll produce and it's happening in the nfl definitely and a lot of that i think is probably even more economic where you know once you have this window on the rookie contracts and you need to take advantage and that's sort of how you win the super bowl these days is to take advantage of your rookie contracts isn't all of this also part of like the the way that the leagues have decided to kind of structure their salaries and and kind of pay system where universally young players kind of come into the league and are not paid their market value. Um, and that's like a choice that's made because I guess the, the team owners have obviously an incentive to do that, but then also the unions themselves also have an incentive because they're mostly made up of veteran players that don't really mind screwing over the young players under the premise that they'll get their, their payout down the line. And so, yeah, I think this is a trend that we're seeing in all the sports and Probably that has a big reason to do with it, too. Like Chase Stewart at Football Perspective, he found that they changed the CBA in the NFL to pay less to players on rookie contracts. Immediately, the share of all approximate value by NFL players, and that's kind of a proxy for starts and various other things like that, in addition to performance, went from 45%, where it had kind of stayed flat since the early 2000s, to now being basically 50% or higher compared with players that were on their next contract after their rookie contract. And so I think that that's telling, is that leagues are sort of allocating more opportunity to the players that are the cheapest because they've all kind of collectively decided let's underpay these guys sometimes drastically in their first few years in the league because they have no bargaining power. It's interesting that the one sport where veterans are still like in control is tennis where there's no league that can like push out Roger Roger Federer or or Rafael Nadal that's the the, you know a league where they can just keep playing forever and keep the the younger guys down we're seeing it less in women's tennis where there's been a bunch of stories of like younger females men's tennis is just strange and it just feels like it's going to go on and you know in perpetuity of just these three guys just winning indefinitely for the rest of time. (laughs) And of course, just to kind of circle it back to baseball, the elephant in the room is in that chart that you were talking about, Sarah, since 2000 and the share of value by old players going down and young players going up kind of mirrors the uh, crackdown on performance enhancing drugs in baseball. And, you know, that is a topic probably it deserves its own show uh, just about what do we know about how much steroids affected home run rates and, and various other things in uh, baseball during the 90s? Because I think 
the the common conception, which somebody like Bud Selig had a vested interest in pushing, was this idea of McGuire injects steroids, hits a bunch of home runs. That's bad. What will the children think? You know, it it inflated numbers. We fixed this now, but I, there's a lot of evidence that shows that home runs as a share of balls put in play were not really all that high during the steroid era, and that the things that we're seeing with the ball itself right now speak to maybe when we see home run spikes. Certainly, when we've seen offensive spikes in the past, it's been more about more often about the ball and its composition than it's been about players taking weird substances the one way in which maybe the steroid the underappreciated way in which the steroid era affected baseball was just that it allowed older players to recover faster and and hang on to more of their peak form for longer and that is probably the reason why we're seeing you know young players kind of take over now that they've cracked down harder on performance enhancing drugs is that the old players don't have that in their arsenal uh, of tricks. Maybe they should start drinking a lot of water and working on pliability exercises what like about Tom kale? Brady and, and eating a lot of kale. Yeah. Clearly baseball's older players are not doing those things. You know, it's very complicated as to what um, all how all of these factors kind of come together and, and that's what makes it impossible to say like you know, when a generation comes out and dominates like this current crop of young players in baseball, we know it's partially because they're just a historically talented generation, but it's so much more than that right. uh, kind of playing into it. Yeah, it's hard to hard to tease each piece out since there are so many things that have gone into the way baseball has changed over the past 20 years. And it's a closed system, for better or for worse. Right. You know, one player's gain in war is another player's loss. And usually it's the, the young players are gaining and the older ones are losing. <laughs> Stealing war from their elders. Or you could argue that during the steroids era, these Clemens types were stealing war from their youngers. And now it's now the this is the adjustment back. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. The backlash to the backlash. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a good place to leave that. The 2019 college football season officially kicks off this weekend. The Associated Press rankings are out with my beloved Iowa State coming in at 21st. Congratulations. Thank you. I that. felt I, you know, I worked really hard. I've been putting in my two a days. It's been, you know. You've earned it. You've earned it, Sarah. I have earned it. I thought you had been like casting extra ballots as a member of the media. <laughs> I do not you have, do have access. I do not have a vote. <laughs> this wasn't my fault. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but I'm very excited about the season. Um, in advance of the season, the college football podcast shut down full cast, hosted a bold predictions show in which this hot take from Spencer. Spencer Hall drew gasps. So I'm going to go big, y'all. It hasn't happened since 2010. Alabama loses at least two regular season games. My God. My God. Good grief. In 2010, when Alabama was just off a national championship, the Tide lost to South Carolina, LSU, and Auburn. Alabama hasn't even lost two total games, including a bowl game, since 2014. Jeff, could this really be the year that Bama loses to? Yeah, I, I could see it. I don't think it's that crazy, actually. I, you look at what they've done, you know, so consistently, more consistently than really any team in memory, and it, it's kind of hard to believe. But I do think this, like, turnover with the coordinators is going to catch up to them. They have a new offensive coordinator and a new defensive coordinator this year. I think Tua's health 
could play a huge factor in that. I mean, he's already got some like issues and, you know, if he's going to be going in the top couple picks of the NFL draft at a certain point, you know, he'll probably be looking out for himself and that alone could could change that. I mean, obviously they lost a huge amount of talent on the defensive side to the NFL, the offensive side looks pretty loaded. Um, looks like they'll be even better. Um, but again, you know, if they don't have their quarterback there, it's going to be a different story. So I could see it. Also, every team in their conference is tough. I mean, and they're getting better. You know, Texas A&M is tough. LSU is tough. Yeah, and for what it's worth, um, ESPN's Football Power Index, which does take into account all you know changes at key positions like quarterback, but also coordinators uh, and and coaching staff changes. It has Alabama as the second best team in the country behind Clemson. Uh, and this was this came up um, when the top twenty five came out. This was the first time Clemson has ever been number one in the preseason top twenty five. Uh, and it's the first time any team has been a new number one uh, since Georgia was named number one going into the two thousand eight season. Oh my goodness! Uh, and so it it does speak to the fact that Alabama has clear competition this is the first time they've ever kind of in a while i think that they've entered a season where they're like looking up at a team uh, a team that had beaten them pretty convincingly uh to end the season before uh and so he said two two losses losses. Mm -hmm. i mean maybe he's looking at a trip to texas a&m on october 12th auburn they have to play that one uh on the plains those are tough games they have LSU, but they're at home. I don't know that this is a notably more difficult schedule. Well, those are the only three ranked teams that Alabama plays this year, which is interesting to me. I mean, they have an okay schedule strength, 21st, according to the FPI. So, I, I mean, it doesn't seem that tricky of a schedule to me. I don't think it's particularly hard, but I think it, you know, the SEC west in general is just tough i mean every every schedule is hard so it doesn't it it ultimately doesn't matter i mean some of these games that look innocuous now could be you know thorny in october november yeah and and one of the other important things is that when we're talking about clemson and we're talking about schedule strength they actually perennially have a much easier schedule than a lot of these sec teams they're basically an sec caliber like talent wise team but in a much easier conference uh, and seems so smart. that seems like i mean the that's way to go, the right? way to yeah. do it right uh so you mentioned alabama had the 21st most difficult schedule according to the fpi georgia has the sixth most difficult schedule as lsu has the 10th most difficult schedule florida has the fourth most difficult schedule and auburn has the seventh most difficult schedule Jeez. but if you look at clemson they have the 56th most difficult schedule and they easily have the highest probability of winning all of their pre-bowl games espn gives them a 49 percent chance of winning out and gives them an 89 percent chance of winning their conference so in in some ways alabama it's kind of business as usual in terms of yeah they play a tough schedule the sec as much as you know i i, I hate to be that guy propping up the SEC uh, and and kind of you <laughs> know need, talking about how difficult it up, is. So, yeah. I still I just think two losses, you know, that would keep them out of the playoff, you know, I assume it no two loss team has ever made the playoffs. Alabama has never not made the playoffs. So, it seems it just seems it seems unlikely to me. I don't feel like I should ever bet against Alabama. I feel like that's the lesson I've learned over the past decade of college football. <laughs> 
Well, so the top four in the AP poll, Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Oklahoma. If that sounds familiar, those are the four teams that made the playoff two years ago when Bama eventually beat Georgia in overtime for the title. Neil, are these the most likely teams to make the playoffs at this moment? I, I'm not totally sure. So here at 538, we have our own model to forecast the uh, college football playoff, but we tend not to release it until we get a few games under our belt. You know, you get into conference play and, and start to sort of get more information on these teams. So uh, in lieu of that, I think one of the things you could look at is, the like I mentioned before, the probability of winning out against your schedule. And according to that metric, uh, this is, of course, using the the football power index. The four most likely teams are Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Jeff Foster's own Michigan Wolverines what? with an 8.4% chance of winning out. Uh, and that's a big gap between them at number four in that metric and then um, a, a three-way tie for fifth in the country between Georgia, Notre Dame, and UCF, of course, UCF is its own sort of special circumstance. Uh, it, it, when, whenever they went out, it is by far not a guarantee that they will make the uh, college football playoff. But if you're talking about the Notre Dames, the Georgias, and, and Michigans of, of the world, it's a pretty good bet that if any of those teams do win all of their games, they'll be locks to make the playoff. Alabama and Clemson also have the current front runners for the Heisman Trophy in Tuo Tagoviola and Trevor Lawrence. But as Jake Lorem wrote for us recently, the Heisman is very difficult to predict. Marcus Mariota in 2014 was the only preseason favorite in the past 10 years who actually won. Jeff, what makes the Heisman so difficult to predict? What we're seeing with freshmen emerging, especially in the quarterback position, which you know it's kind of the default Heisman winner is going to be a quarterback. We're seeing a lot of freshmen who we don't know about. So you have a lot of guys who appear. You know, when Johnny Manziel um, broke onto the scene, it really took a, a few weeks before anyone was really talking about him. And it wasn't until, you know, the Alabama game that the nation was talking about him. So he went from this virtual no name to Heisman favored in a span of 10 weeks. And we saw the same thing happen, you know, when Cam Newton won as a you know, a transfer from a JUCO, um, Jameis Winston, likewise, you know, obviously he's in a good program in Florida state, but no one had really known him. So you, these guys kind of burst on the scene and it's hard to predict. I mean, even with all the recruiting and all that, but also the other factor is you need to stay healthy and you need your team to be good. I mean, even Lamar Jackson and, and some of these guys, Robert Griffin, the third, their teams were still, you know, pretty good. Your team can't be like a, seven loss team and even if you're pat mahomes and putting up crazy numbers you're not going to win the heisman so a couple things need to go your way and then there's also just we don't see every year things come out of nowhere michigan's charles woodson won it in 1997 but no player who since then who wasn't a quarterback or running back has won the trophy and among the 21 winners since woodson including reggie bush only five were running backs the rest were quarterbacks Neil, does that make sense given what we know about which positions matter the most in football? Um, sort of. I mean, quarterback is the part that makes sense mm-hmm. because we, if nothing, if we've learned nothing else about football in the analytics era, it's just how valuable quarterbacks are, and so it makes sense that that would be true in both the pros and college. The thing that doesn't make sense is that in the NFL, they're kind of convulsed with this debate over whether running backs matter at all. You know, are they? totally replaceable can the production be 
you know, just slot in anyone and, and get uh, production behind a good offensive line if you have a good passing game. And in college football, there is still this weirdly strong tradition of running backs being considered the best player. And maybe that's changing a little bit. I mean, we're on a run of three straight quarterbacks, and you'd have to go back to Derrick Henry uh, of Alabama, who predictably, I feel like all of these um, Heisman winners in, in college among the running backs ended up not necessarily becoming superstars in uh, the pros. Uh, and so it's a question of whether is college different than the pros enough that maybe running backs, if even if they don't matter in the NFL, they still matter some in college because there are teams that have rush-heavy offenses, although more and more now you're seeing college teams just throw the ball like there's no tomorrow. Or is it just a an appeal to tradition? Is it um, we've always given the Heisman to a dominating running back or quarterback, and in the absence of a, a no-brainer quarterback, we'll give it to the guy that racked up a bunch of yards and had you know a, a stellar rushing season. And also how much of it is that running back aging curves, as we've kind of analyzed the progression of running back careers, they start their careers really strong. If you're going to have a strong NFL rushing season, it will be probably as a rookie or like in your first couple of years. And then it's just kind of downhill and you're basically done as an effective player by the age of like 28. Whereas quarterbacks have a much longer, uh, you know, period of, of coming into their own. And so maybe it's just that you get the best years of a running back, like in an absolute sense in their entire life during the years in which they're in college mm -hmm. and they're sort of already on the downswing by the time they get to the pros, whereas for quarterbacks, there's more of sort of a, a rise and fall where you're not getting the best seasons that you'll ever get. You're not getting the best kind of combination of skills and know-how that a quarterback will have until they hit their late 20s, and then apparently they can just keep playing into their late 30s and beyond and still play at a Hall of Fame level. Let's talk about which teams outside of those, like the big names, the kind of the top, the top contenders for the title, you guys will be watching this season just as a team that could surprise people. My sleeper will be Utah. I actually really like this team this year. I think the Pac-12 South is pretty weak. I mean, I think USC will be a little bit better. UCLA, we'll see. But it's a pretty soft schedule. I mean, if you look at, at what they have to do, the really only challenging game is going up to Washington um, and winning, which is always tough. But if they can do that, I think they have a legitimately good shot at, at winning 11 games. Yeah, and for me, I think um, Oregon might be uh, a nice pick. So they have a 2.3% chance of winning out, which is eighth in the country. Uh, and they rank only 12th in the, in the preseason, um, AP poll. But FPI thinks they're one of the 10 best teams in the country. Yeah, I, th I think they could be a value pick between rating and schedule. You know, they, their, their most difficult matchup comes very, very early in the season. It's actually the very first game. They're playing Auburn and they only have a 46% chance of winning according to the FPI. But if they do win that, they really have only a couple other interesting games to have to navigate. They're on the road against Washington. That's going to be tough. And then they're on the road against USC. 
But that that's where they get that that chance of of winning out from is if they can make it past Auburn in that first game, which is a neutral site game. So go Ducks! Wow, Pac Pac twelve love here. Interesting. I'm going to the Big Ten. This I I hate myself for this, but oh no, I. I am fascinated by Nebraska. Okay, so I just came back from a weekend in Omaha, so this might just be recency bias, but they are very excited about the Huskers this year. You know, Scott Frost in year two, Adrian Martinez is getting some Heisman consideration right now. I, I don't know. I'm interested in this team. They they came on, you know, in the second half of last season. They played so much better. Will this be the year that Nebraska rises from the ashes? I just, I can't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with that, but I'm interested to see what happens. I mean, it's bound to happen eventually. I mean, last year was interesting because they were breaking in a new offense and a new defense at the same time. And it really, like, you could you could tell in the beginning, I mean, that even the game, the game they went to Ann Arbor and got destroyed. And then you look at that team that came out towards the end of the season, it was a completely different team. So if we're seeing more of what we saw in the second half, which would seem to make sense, then, yeah, I, I could see it. I, I don't know if this is their year. I mean, Martinez has to stay healthy, which has been a problem for him in the past. Um, but if he can, sure. I mean, it'd be good. It'd be good to get them back in the fold. I mean, maybe it would be good for the Big Ten. It would not be good for me personally because, man, I hate the Huskers. But it'll be an interesting college football season anyway. Okay, let's get our predictions on record now so that we can talk about how terrible they were later on. Who's going to win it all? The college football playoff? Yeah. Clemson. What about you? Yeah, I'm really going out on yeah. a limb there. Way to go. <laughs> I, I feel like my job here is to make a really bad that pick, is usually but I kind of want to pick Clemson, too. <laughs> you can pick Clemson. Clemson with a P. Oh, okay. Interesting. Different school. <laughs> Different school, yeah. I feel like I should pick Alabama, right? I should. I mean, just, they're uh, just no, there waiting for me. Alabama. Now, you right. know what? I'm going to pick Georgia. We, I'm changing mine. I'm going to take Georgia. No, just, I just picked I was gonna Georgia. Take no, you can't. You already picked Clemson. Oh, okay. I'm picking Georgia. <laughs> well, I can't pick the same as Neil and pick the chalk. Old chalky Neil over there. Do Bama. Um, <laughs> or do so, Michigan. So, yeah, just take Michigan. Michigan. Do nope. it. You nope. know that's what you think. Nope. It's bad enough when they lose. I don't need this also thrown in my face. <laughs> I mean, this will be thrown in your face. I'm going to take Oklahoma. Listen. I'll take oh, Oklahoma. Oh, come on. Ugh. Terrible. They All have right. no defense. Okay, we'll we'll revisit this often. Our fates have been sealed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let's start playing these games. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Today, we're joined by 538 designer Emily Shear. Start us off, Emily. So the 2019 Little League World Series is in full swing this week. The Little League World Series is one of my favorite sporting events of the year. It's 15 straight days of peak weird baseball. <laughs> so as Sarah Neal can attest, having sat next to me for the entire uh, span of the World Series so far, I love this. I dive deeply in. Uh, I follow the regional tournaments, which have also been across ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN+. And also when I was in San Diego, I would follow my local San Diego teams back, not only across regionals, but state, section, and district, fully going down to watching them in my local park. 
San Diego has actually represented the West region twice in recent years and had a lot of success. 2009 Parkview Little League went on to win over Chinese Taipei. Very formative in my uh, love of the Little League World Series. And then 2013 Eastlake Little League won the U.S. bracket, but they lost in the championship game to Japan. So over 6,500 Little League teams across the U.S. and around the world has been narrowed down to just 16 teams who have made it to South Williamsport. As of this morning, we are down to just nine teams as they continue to play through the modified double elimination tournament. So they can lose once, and then they go into a loser's bracket, and then they win their way out. But the final games are just single elimination. There's no 13-year-olds this year, um, but we've got kids who are under 70 pounds going up against 200-pound kids. (laughs) That's amazing. Yes, it's like a very clear display of puberty in action. Right, right. (laughs) New Jersey pitcher Yadi Mateo looks and plays like a grown man. He has like a 1,500 OPS, right? (laughs) Yes, I think we found the numbers and they're just very high. He's very imposing. And then you've also just got a lot of weird baseball. You've got runs scored on wild pitches, a lot of bunting. Though traditionally the Little League World Series has been known for a lot of home runs being hit out of the park. They changed the bats last year to behave more like wooden bats. So we have less stingers going over the wall. As of Monday afternoon, we've only had about six home runs. One of the highlights of the Little League World Series is always getting to know all of the players. We find out their nicknames, their favorite foods, emojis. Their favorite app is a question this year that we find out. Their favorite app? It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Snapchat. Yeah, right. YouTube. I was going to say it's The like, ESPN yeah. app was actually mentioned. Oh. I suppose. (laughs) Got to promote the brand. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We should have been keeping track of how many of the players said their favorite food was bacon, which love, love that one. (laughs) There's one kid that really liked squid. Squid. Wow. Very specific. And his favorite emoji was also the squid. Yeah. (laughs) It just makes sense. And we get all these fun facts are distributed across the broadcasts. So not only in like the little uh, graphic that goes up while they're batting, but in their intros. And in their various interviews. As we get to know all of these kids every year, we also get to know all of their crazy names. So prior years, we met Monet Davis, who is awesome in her own right as sort of the big name female player at the Little League World Series. Also, Monet Davis, great name. And in 2013, we met what I think is probably one of the greatest Little League World Series names. And he's not even a player. Tennessee player Blake Money's brother, the one and only Cash Money. Cash Money. This year, the name that caught my eye, Winter Lone Bear. So naturally, a rabbit hole that began from Montana's Winter Lone Bear quickly grew to capture the entire United States regional tournament rosters, which is about 690 names. We then rated them on a scale of 1 to 10, which was then processed through Monet, which is measured ordinal name equation. (laughs) Backronyming. We can't help ourselves. We really can't. (laughs) And then we got our final rating. So our top name is Winter Lone Bear, the one that started it all. He's the only player to get a perfect 10. All three of us gave this child a 10 <laughs> on name. This is Sarah's lone 10. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was stingy with my 10s. Coming in below Winter Lone Bear with 9.0 ratings, we had Remington Rank, Campbell Bjornstad, Finnegan Goldinger, <laughs> Major Smith, Crew Collie, who possibly may be named after Motley Crew. Did they say that on the broadcast? Someone on Twitter did. Oh, okay. It was implied. Yeah. Interesting. Because it's spelled C R U E. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, you gave him a seven? Yeah, it didn't strike my fancy like it did you guys. Yeah, Sorry. we uh, we seem to give like a lot of extra points for alliteration. Yes. Those for, for interesting like 
spelling variants. So Campbell Bjornstad is spelled C-A-M-B-L-E, which I found delightful. And then, yeah, crew, C-R-U-E is Plus is just the great. alliteration. Plus the alliteration. High points for that. <laughs> Our top name at Williamsport. So this list pulled from all the regionals. Of those who made it to Williamsport, Kaden Miyaki Matsubayashi of Hawaii is yeah, our top name with a 9.0. Great name. Also, Kaden spelled K-A-E-D-Y-N. Right, yeah. The spelling is very key on a lot of these. Yeah, he gets points for uh, the alliteration of Miyake Matsubayashi and the interesting spelling of Kaden. And it's just so sad how many... Uh, great names we had to leave on the battlefield of the regionals uh, yeah. before even getting a chance to to be known by a wider audience during the World Series. We lost out on my personal favorite. Um, I gave him a 10. Sarah gave him a 7. I'm sorry, guys. Case in Blood of Vermont. That's your, That was your favorite overall? I think so. I think Case in Blood was the one I kept coming back to. Also, at the 8.83 Monet rating, Hut Hargrove of Tennessee. I wanted to give a shout out to my personal favorite. Well, I gave out four tens, one to Winter Lone Bear, one to Crew Collie, and then one to Cole Throckmorton, Cole spelled K-O-L-E, and of course, Jet Peterson, Jet spelled J-H-E-T-T, which is, I think, in addition to being one of the best names of any little leaguer this season, also uh, should get the record for what David Roth uh, would call the most uh, George Lucas-ass name. Uh, anyone named Jet with two Ts, it's a George Lucas-ass name. Yes. <laughs> Some other ones of note in our top tiers. Spike Gall, Chaz Huff, who made it to Williamsport. Chaz is spelled C-H-A-Z-E. Garrett Buzzard, Preston Schufeld, of my respective tens, who hasn't been brought up yet, Major Smith, and Dawson Daniels. Dawson Daniels just really writing the alliteration. Popular amongst all of the Little Leaguer names was various spellings of Caden, Aiden, Jaden, and even a Kaysen. So swap out some Y's, some I's, change the E-N to an O-N. Every variation is in there. And then looking at some notable folks at Williamsport right now, still playing for their title. Reese Roussel leads the entire tournament in hits. He's 7 for 10 for Louisiana, playing in the uh, the loser bracket right now. His name had a solid 6.67 Monet. Maddie Frecking was the only gal this year. She was eliminated by Louisiana on Monday night, but had a great sort of showing at second base and even took a turn on the mound. We had her at 7.17. Justin Lee has thrown a complete game no-hitter for Virginia against Minnesota, and then he also combined with two of his teammates for another no-hitter against Rhode Island earlier in the tournament. He has a very low Monet of 2.67. But through two no-hitters, so he's Is doing okay. have a great name but not play that well or play really well but have a 2.67 I'm Monet. sure he'll take the playing well. Yes. <laughs> of note, we did not go through and do international name ratings, but... Uh, some shout-outs to Harrison Ford of Australia, his favorite actor, Harrison Ford. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Jurdrick Profar is the third Profar brother to play in the Little League World Series for Curacao. His older brothers are both in the Major League system in the U.S. Jerickson Profar is with the Oakland A's, and Jeremy Profar is in the Texas Rangers system. Curacao is still in it for title contention. Emily, what would you give Jurdrick Profar uh, in terms of Monet? That's like a solid eight, I think. Okay. All right. What about Jurickson Profar? Oh, nine. Nine. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Instant reaction there. And then we've had a lot of twins. 
which is always a fun part of the Little League World Series. Most notably, um, my personal favorite are Chase and Brett Triplett, who are twins. <laughs> They're twins named Triplett. Yes. I bet they get a lot of, of comments on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they've heard it all. Yeah, already. sure. <laughs> One last honorable mention for at the Little League Home Run Derby, which was held during all the festivities at Williamsport. Cash compliment. Cash compliment. Yeah, that would <laughs> have been a, that would have been a ten Monet for me. Yeah, I have to assume he had stingers too. He was at the little league home run. Right. Derby. Yeah, you'd have to. Even with the um, dejuiced bats. Yes. Yeah. And then looking ahead um, at the rest of the games coming up across ESPN, ESPN two, ABC. We've got the losers bracket plays today with New Jersey versus Rhode Island, and then Venezuela versus Curacao. Wednesday, Louisiana will play the winner of New Jersey versus Rhode Island, and Hawaii versus Virginia, and South Korea versus Japan will be the winner's bracket games that night. U.S. and international finals are on Saturday with the championship game on Sunday. I'm very excited. Which games are you most pumped for? So I think Hawaii-Virginia is going to be like a really big battle. You've got Virginia's pitching has held them, has gotten them to this point, but Hawaii has Always been a big powerhouse at, the, at Williamsport. New Jersey has some power, and they also, because of the proximity to Williamsport, they bring like six buses worth of crowds, so they definitely have that home team energy. But Rhode Island has basically been playing their entire Little League season in elimination games. They've lost early in most of their tournaments, but have continued to win throughout and battled it back. I personally have ties to Rhode Island, so I'm a little bit biased here, but I'm hoping they pull it out. And then Louisiana also has a ton of fight at the Little League Classic Major League game. They pulled out an excellent Craig Kimbrell impression right in front of him while he as was he was pitching, pitching yeah. which they always love to talk about how like baseball is the universal language that all these children share. I think making fun of Craig Kimbrell's <laughs> pitching motion is even more universal. The real universal language. Yes. <laughs> you had the whole stadium doing it, and they're all doing the pose. What must he have thought? Like, I, if he saw it at all, like everyone mimicking him as he's trying to pitch. I think it might have taken him back to being in middle school. Like, there was oh, just yeah. like the entire crowd was bullying him, but like in the best way. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. That was a very fun rabbit hole into this extremely joyful exhibition of baseball over the, the last couple of weeks. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us, listeners. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you hear, subscribe. Review and rate the show as well, please. It helps others discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Emily, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time. Next time.